they had already kidnapped a senior army officer. So I had a bodyguard that was with me all day and, and at night. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. We continue the story of Richard Stahursky from the previous episode. In 1971, Richard left NASA and was assigned to the Drone Remotely Piloted Vehicle System Program Office at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. From 1975 to 1978, Richard did a tour of duty with the air staff at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and between 1978 and 1981, he was Deputy Program Manager for the ground-launched cruise missile program GLICM, or GLCM, System Program Office engaged in the adaption of the Navy's cruise missile for use by the Air Force. In 1981, he was assigned to the staff at US Air Force Europe headquarters at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany, responsible for the deployment of the ground launch cruise missile to five European countries. Richard was then promoted in 1984 to Vice Commander and then Commander of the 487th Tactical Missile Wing at Comiso Air Station in Sicily, where he was responsible for the operational readiness of that missile wing and the welfare of his troops. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. This is Mary O'Grady. Anyone who's interested in Cold War history should definitely subscribe and support Cold War Conversations. Thank you. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Richard Stahursky to our Cold War Conversation. By the time I left NASA, it becoming evident that the program might be winding down. And, and by that time, NASA had you know, upgraded its manning to the point where the need for Air Force officers was not so acute. So the Air Force, you know, wanted their people back. And so I was transferred to another assignment. And what was that other assignment? I was assigned to the Drone Remotely Pilot Vehicle Systems Program Office at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And, And one other point relative to the NASA thing that is pertinent while I was there in Houston, I found out they spoke a different language. And it wasn't just howdy and good morning, y'all. It was like sine and cosine and a variation of I, X with respect to Y. They spoke mathematics. And I didn't. So I um, decided to go back to school and study mathematics. And I started into that while I was there. And there was a NASA civilian network controller by the name of Dave Young, who just was an enormous help. He tutored me, and sometimes he even went to class with me to make sure he understood what they were trying to impart. 
And so he was one of the people, again, who helped me along the way and for which I'm always very grateful. But as I said, I was transferred to the Drone Remotely Piloted Vehicle Systems Program Office, and they were responsible for developing these new systems, which at that stage were in their very, you know, infantile stage. I guess little did you know how important this program was going to be in the future. No, we did not. What was the rationale behind developing this program? Were they worried about the attrition of pilots on missions and trying to find a way of delivering, doing some of this work uh, remotely in an automated way? Um, they That was the primary consideration, preserving the lives of, of air crew members. and. Um, you know, being being able to take greater risks, but also there was uh, an opportunity to relieve air crew crews of what were sometimes very tedious surveillance roles. You know, just plowing through the sky hour after hour in great circles, trying to collect intelligence information. So the collection of intelligence was one of the primary objectives. It was the primary objective of the program I worked on. Right. So so it was being developed more as a reconnaissance tool rather than as an offensive tool. In, in the case, yeah, the program I worked on was called Compass Cope. And uh, it, it was kind of fun in a way because, it was, as you said, these were early stages of these developments. And so they, you know, I was a fuzzy-headed captain. And they gave me $20 million and they said, here's a one-sentence statement of work carry 1,500 pounds of payload above 55,000 feet without, for 24 hours without refueling. Go see if you can do that. And here I am. You know, I have no background in aeronautics, none whatsoever. I was very, very fortunate because they assigned a civilian engineer to me. It's, you know, a civil service uh, person. And his name was Oren Brenning. He was an aeronautical engineer. And he coached me through this whole thing. He was just enormously helpful. Another one of those people who helped me along the way. And we did it. We had two contractors, Boeing and Teledyne Ryan. We built and tested airplanes. We were two of them. Each contractor built two airplanes. Boeing lost one in an accident. Uh, but Teledyne Ryan flew above 55,000 feet for 28 hours without refueling, which was a world record. So we had a successful program. So so the two contractors were competing for the contract? Yes. Was that difficult to manage that or not? No, it, it, there wasn't any particular difficulty. We had to be careful not to you know, give proprietary information from one contractor to another. And, uh, but other than that, they were pretty civil and, you know, went about the business of trying to get the job done. Why was the specification for such a high altitude? Was it to avoid anti-aircraft missiles? That was the primary purpose and to increase the surveillance area. What interesting stories have you got from this period, Richard? 
I guess the thing that was kind of unique was, uh, you know, being a, a non, being a ground pounder, as they called it, not an air crew member. I didn't have a sense of how the, the rest of the Air Force felt about these programs. And so uh, after we lost an aircraft in a, in a takeoff accident, and I had to go to headquarters and explain what had happened. And I was briefing a general who was uh, known for being somewhat caustic. And uh, it was clear that he just didn't understand why anybody would want to replace his pilots with this junk. I mean, he was pretty hostile to the whole idea. And it came through to me for the first time that there was a lot of that environment out there. What was the earliest period that drones were used operationally? I honestly don't know because we, as I said, were doing the high altitude work, but there were, you know, normal operating altitudes where the uh, drones were in action, you know, well before we did our work. So this was one branch of the drone program for a sort of like reconnaissance version and there was another branch presumably working on an offensive version yeah they were tactical yeah so this is 1975 so um the vietnam war has been winding down and uh then you're you're off to the uh, pentagon for a while yes yes so what what was the role you had there? I worked in the office in XP in plans that was charged with advocating for the drone programs. So what we did was try and get budget allocations for the developments, uh, get blessings for compatible schedules, represent the programs in essentially every facet and try and defend them there uh, so that they could move forward. So we, we were doing the staff work and budgets and schedules and what have you to try and advance these programs. Any incidents there? Any personal stories? <laughs> well, it was a valuable tour in the sense that I learned something about the workings of the uh, Air Force bureaucracy. But the story that stands out the most relative to all of that bureaucratic business was one day I... I had to deliver these papers to uh, a colonel who was the uh, uh, chief of staff of one of the senior officers in our chain of command there. And I had paper clipped the material together and I handed it to him and I got a three minute lecture on the use of paper clips. He said, you have the long side of the paper clip on the front side of these papers. They weren't designed that way. They were designed so that the short side would be to the front so that you could easily access and detach the papers. And he went on and on about it. And I said, hmm, talk about your bureaucracy. Must have been a military secret that you hadn't been told about the uh, position of the paper clips. (laughs) Yeah, I apparently wasn't cleared. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But, I mean, following your time at the Pentagon, you are involved in a key program 
towards the end of the Cold War with a a unique um, new weapon system. Part of that assignment goes back to, as I told you, when I was in Houston, I started studying for a uh, mathematics degree. And when I was in Ohio at the Drone RPV Spo, I finished my degree there at Wright State University, which had a really good math department. And once I had done that, then I was qualified under Air Force ground rules to continue working in research and development programs, you know, which I did then for a very long period of time. And so when I finished at the, at the Pentagon, uh, they were uh, building up the uh, ground launch cruise missile program office, which was part of the joint cruise missile project office, which was a joint Navy Air Force operation headed by a Navy admiral named Walter Locke. And our job was to take the existing Navy sea launch cruise missile and convert it for ground use. So this involves the design and manufacture of the missile launcher itself and also the uh, control center for it. Yes, yes. Yeah, those were the main items. And then the logistical support system to support it and the design of the facilities that would support it. Why was the Navy's platform chosen? Because the, you know, the Pershing missiles were already um, being used for, for from a ground launch role. Why, why was there the need for the, the uh, cruise nuclear missile system? Well, the Pershing was a ballistic missile. And so went to a relatively high altitude during its attack profile. The cruise missiles were designed to be under the radar. We used a navigation system called TURCOM, terrain contour matching. And using that system, they flew at 50 feet and they could go 1,200 miles and hit a target within 30 meters, you know, while sneaking under the enemy's defenses. I can remember we were testing a missile. In fact, it was the first test from a ground launcher, a Dugway Proving Ground in Utah. And um, the, we watched the test launch. And then we were walking along the dry lake bed and, and the missile had was flying in a loop. And it came over us and you couldn't hear a thing until it passed by you. And it was literally at 50 feet. Wow. And incredible accuracy as well. Yes, very much so. And the advantage with the Navy's missiles and all the basic development work had been done. So it's just a way of finding a way of getting it launched from the ground and the the vehicle to carry it and the support structure around it. Exactly, exactly. As far as the specification and requirements, that was was really it because there was already this pre-existing system. So it was was finding a way of launching it effectively from, from the ground. And maintaining the performance that was included in the specification. What were the main challenges that you had sort of facilitating that conversion? I have to say that that was relatively straightforward. You know, our primary contract was General Dynamics in San Diego. They did a good job. They were given the um, specification and they delivered on it. Yes, you're there for uh, three years um, developing that, and then uh, 
you don't escape the cruise missile program, do you? You move on to uh, an, another role within it. Yeah, and again, that that's a bit of a strange story. After three years at the Ground Launch Cruise Missile Program Office, I was due to go to the uh, senior military school, the Air War College, and uh, I was kind of, you know, oriented toward that goal. And I got a phone call from personnel, and they said, General Nichols at the Pentagon is going to Germany, and one of the things he's going to oversee is the Glickham deployment, and he wants you to go with him. And I said, who the heck is General Nichols? I had never heard of the guy. But he apparently had heard of me, and he wanted me to go. And at that time, if you were a colonel, you had to volunteer for an overseas assignment like that. So I had a bit of a negotiation with the personnel people. I said, well, I'm supposed to go to the Air War College, and, you know, that's important to advancing my career and whatever, whatever. And they said, go ahead and fulfill General Nichols' request, and we'll send you to whatever air college you want to go to. And I said to myself, well, I'll talk about that one. I said, I want to go to the Royal College of Defense Studies in London. And they said, okay, done. And so... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I had signed up to go to Germany. But you knew that you'd got a uh, a trip to London as well in there. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, what was your role with, with General Nichols in Germany? We were at the headquarters of the United States Air Force in Europe at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. And General Nichols was XP. He was the chief of plans. And one of the things he was responsible for in that role was the deployment of this new Glickham system. And so they created a group called XPG. That's the role he wanted me to play, was to head that group to oversee the deployment of these systems to these European countries. Which countries was this going to be deployed to? It was going to be Germany, England, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Italy. Were you having to negotiate the agreements with the with the host country? No, not directly. Uh, the agreement negotiation, as it was appropriate, was the role of the embassy in that country. But what we did was support those negotiations with whatever technical information they needed relative to you know, base requirements, system characteristics, all those sorts of things. 
th- this required quite a significant construction program in each of those countries as well. Yes, it did. We had to, to construct bunkers to store the missile launchers in. Uh, we had to construct weapon storage areas. Uh, we had to construct living and support facilities for our troops. Uh, a really good example was Comiso uh, Air Station in Sicily. It was a former German World War II fighter base that had been bombed into oblivion. We had to essentially start from scratch and, and literally spent hundreds of millions of dollars building all the facilities you need for support and operations. And we had, you know, a lot of cooperation, particularly there from the Navy with the construction and from the Italian Genedife, the Italian engineering branch. It was uh, not atypical. There was a lot to be done at all of these bases. Yeah, were were some more challenging than others in terms of the, the construction then? Not so much in terms of the construction. I think the most challenging one in terms of the deployment itself was the Netherlands. They seemed to be somewhat reluctant to expand their role in NATO to include deploying these nuclear weapons. And so the negotiations and the planning for deployment went kind of slowly there. There were other issues too. Uh, uh, The Italians, for example, wanted to control the nuclear weapons that would be deployed with the missiles. And we, of course, weren't going to have that happen. And so we said, okay, you can't control them, but you can provide part of the security force, you know, to oversee them. And they finally agreed to that. And so the arrangement was that a company of Carabinieri, the Italian paramilitary police, would be assigned to the base to help guard the weapon storage area. And so when I was there at Comiso as a commander, I was the only American in, in Italy who commanded Italian troops, interestingly <laughs> enough. Yeah. Well, we'll come on to uh, your role at Comiso in a moment. I mean, the Dutch had quite a large anti-nuclear movement, so I guess they were um, keeping an eye on their next general election as well. Yeah, that's true. And in Britain as well, there was significant opposition at Greenham Common. Uh, demonstrations got a lot of press, almost worldwide. Our job basically was to let the host countries deal with those uh, demonstrations and protests and not to be seen as imposing anything on the local population that denied their rights. We had to be pretty diplomatic about it. Can you tell me how these ground-launched cruise missiles were deployed in the host countries? Systems were deployed in flights. It consisted of four launchers with four missiles each and a launch control center. When the flag went up, they deployed from the main base to remote off-site locations. You know, anywhere they could find in the woods that where they could hide. And these were just really, really highly classified locations, obviously. The idea was to disperse them so to make them less vulnerable to, to attack. They'd already chosen these locations, so 
you know, they knew where they were going to go. But I, I guess they had security units with them as well. Yeah, the, the typical flight consisted of the launchers, the launch control center, maintenance personnel, the uh, launch control team, uh, flight commander, and an assigned security force. And the security force in these cases was fairly significant because they would go into the woods somewhere, you know, put up camouflage netting and what have you. But then it was the job of the security police to keep the site secure. Because I guess the the fear was something like uh, Spetsnats trying to get them or, or something else like that? That was the primary fear, yes, the Russian special forces. So when I was there at, at Comiso, that was a primary consideration that we used to, to deploy for training to an Italian site called Vizzini, and the flights would go out there and set up and we would test them by deploying aggressive forces. <laughs> it was kind of fun, but sometimes I would go with the aggressors in the middle of the night and crawl through the weeds <laughs> and listen to the rats scurrying around you and uh, try and penetrate the perimeters, which I did one night. Got myself under a launcher and blew it up. Yeah, they they were dependent on the uh, the uh, security forces, and uh, they were really you know important to accomplishing the role. I used to sometimes go out and essentially assign myself to the security force. I would you know man a guard post under the supervision of an NCO or whoever was responsible for that area. So I could get an idea of what they were doing and how they were doing it and what help they might need. I, I remember one time I was out there and and there was a what they called the condition Bravo. We had to go on an additional alert, and so I was sleeping in a tent with this staff sergeant, and he said, "Okay, you got the first watch," and so off I went, sitting there with a bat my back against the tree with my weapon trying to fend off any intruders. Must have taken you back to the uh, early 1960s. Yeah, at Bunker Hill, yeah. During that period when you were, you know, at Ramstein and, and working on that, were there any other incidents that, that stand out for you? First one was the bomb. The uh, headquarters building was a C-shaped building with a parking lot just there in front between the two wings of the building. And terrorists had somehow managed to get a vehicle on base. I think it was a Volkswagen bus, minibus, with a propane tank on board that was rigged to explode. And it did, and uh, caused some significant damage. My family and I were living in an apartment there on base at the time. And I was in the morning getting ready to go to work in the bathroom shaving, and I heard this loud boom, and I didn't know what it was. So I got myself ready and went over and, and sure enough, you know, the bomb had exploded and uh, it had uh, wounded two of my people and uh, done a significant amount of damage to the building. And fortunately, no one was killed. So this was the uh, the Red Army faction, the Bader-Meinhof group? Y yes. I believe it was, yes. 
But uh, beyond that, the, the uh, incidents were a bit, a whole lot more whimsical. <laughs> in the Netherlands in particular, I was told one time that I had a special appointment with the Minister of Defense. And I said, oh man, this is a big deal. And so I was used to the Pentagon, you know, where defense officials were ensconed in nice office complexes in a huge building. So I showed up at the address where I was supposed to go for this meeting, and there was just a row of townhouses. And I said, this can't be right. But I checked the number, and sure enough, there it was. And that's where the defense minister was, in the little office with bookshelves behind him. (laughs) (laughs) So that was interesting. Different style of government in Europe sometimes. Very much, very much so. The, the other thing relative to the Netherlands was I was there on a one mission or another one time, and I was staying in a hotel there in The Hague, and I got a call from an officer in, in Heidelberg that uh, the uh, Sakhir wanted to see me, General Rogers, the Supreme Allied Commander for Europe. And I said, oh, oh, okay, I'll get there as soon as I can. I'll book an airplane ticket. And he said, no, no, don't worry. We're sending an airplane for you. And I said, okay. And sure enough, they sent a little single-engine uh, aircraft. We used to call it a blue canoe. It was a really nice little airplane, comfortable, et cetera. And they flew me down there, and I was escorted into the general's office, and he motioned me to sit down, and I did that. And he looked up, and he said to me, Colonel, do not screw up the Netherlands deployment. And I said, yes, sir, understood. And then I was waiting to hear the rest of it, and he said, dismissed. (laughs) That was it. He just wanted to make his point. And he couldn't do that with a phone call or anything. (laughs) Yeah. No, he wanted to be a little more dramatic about it. Yeah, I mean, you get called into that sort of meeting. You're going to be nervy, I guess, as to what's going to happen. Yeah, to say that the the most senior officer in all of Europe. Just going back to the... um the uh, protest movements. You were talking about the the security of these bases. What what were the orders in terms of if a peace protester got into you know the gamma sites, one of the bunkers where the weapons were stored? Wherever we could, we would depend on local law enforcement outside the base to keep you know incidents from happening. If there was a penetration of the base when there were weapons in storage, then we would have to take action by, you know, apprehending the people and, and you know, treating them appropriately after that. But in Italy, as I said, we had both American and Italians guarding the weapons storage area. You know, I've spoken to security personnel who worked at Upper Hayford there, and they're pretty clear that if somebody crossed certain fences then they did have the authority to use lethal force. Yes, that's true. You know, until they crossed the fence, we tried to use every means we could not to have a confrontation. At the end of your tour with uh, General Nicol, do they uh, stick with their agreement for you for your time at the Royal College of Defence Studies? Yes, yes. And and before we leave General Nichols, um, 
I have to say again, you know, people helped me along through my whole career, and he was one of them. He was just a really, really neat guy. He would, we'd fly somewhere, you know, and if it was a long trip, we'd have to stop and refuel. And he would climb out of the airplane and talk to the refueling crew. He'd say, I'm Dave Nichols. Thanks for what you're doing. And, you know, how do you do that? And, you know, he was just that kind of guy. I, one day I was in my office and he was, he called me and he said, I want to talk to you about some plans for a ceremony for opening the base of Greenham Common. And he said, we ought to have this. And I said, yes, sir. And we ought to have that. I said, yes, sir. Down his list. And finally he said, that's one too many yes, sirs. Get your butt down here. I always consider that a sign of great leadership if you're you're not in your ivory tower. Before I got ready to leave, he called me in the office one day, you know, to kind of say goodbye. And, and he, he said, I'm going to be your rabbi. And what he meant by that was that he was going to support me to try and advance me through the rest of my career, which I was very grateful. It's a great story of your career and, and just people wanting to support you and, and help you right back, yes. to the, right back to the time of the Buick. And uh, driving yes. to Chicago. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's a major part of the story. So, what what's student life like at the Royal College of Defence Studies in London? Is it like normal student life? Lots of time in bars and not attending many studies. I'm sure it's not, but <laughs> tell me. It, it was really tough duty, but somebody had to do it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, we we had an apartment uh, in West 11, a block north of Hyde Park and about two blocks west of Portobello Road. I can remember waking up one morning and, and hearing this clattering in the street, and I couldn't imagine what it was. So I looked out the street, and it was the Royal Horse Guards out for some sort of training exercise. <laughs> And uh, I could take the bus to school every day. And the day's work would consist of about four or five hours of guest lectures delivered by experts from you know one place or another. And the, the focus of the course was international relations. And uh, so that's how we spent our time. There was, there was no real studying or anything like that. We just listened and then afterwards discussed what we'd heard and exchanged views. And it, it was interesting because, uh, you know, there were like 75 students from about 28 different countries. And many of them were, the countries were former British colonies. So there were a lot of interesting exchanges. It was pretty nice and, and it, it also involved overseas you know, well, trips of one sort or another. We spent some time in Scotland, but then we could pick destinations for overseas tours. And so I ended up going to Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, a group of us. And uh, that, as you can expect, was really different. Tell me about your role as vice commander and later commando of Comiso Air Base in Sicily. 
Well, the primary task was to ensure the mission readiness of the unit. But the, but the obvious and important secondary role was seen in the morale and welfare of the people. And that was a particular consideration here because all of the people were on unaccompanied tours. You know, no, no family, no dependents allowed. In fact, the, the vice commander and I were the only ones allowed to have our families there. And that's because it was thought that the wives would be helpful in establishing diplomatic relations with the local community. But uh, other than that, they were all away from their families for a year. Wow. Wow. And how many troops was that that, that were there with you? About 1,700. And how many missiles were under your command? There were 112. Because I think you, you mentioned to me when we were preparing for this call, um, this made you quite a significant nuclear power. Yes, yes, I was. I was. Yeah, we had uh, seven flights, 16 missiles each. It was really interesting. I had to, to sign for the warheads, and I signed for them using a supply hand receipt, a little 5 by 8 sheet of paper, if you went to supply to borrow a tool for some job or whatever, they would give you the tool, but you had to sign a hand receipt. Well, that's what I did for all those nuclear weapons was this little single sheet of paper. I said, wow. Should have got that framed. That would have been a great memento. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but I think I think what you told me is it made you something like the fourth largest nuclear power. I think so, yeah. I don't I don't remember the exact calculation but it was significant. Yeah, and what what were the challenges of of uh the role? That's that's a good question. Um I I think that the basic challenge uh was maintaining the the morale and you know support of of all these troops who were on these unaccompanied tours. And I saw that as a significant challenge. Uh, it turned out to be not as much of a challenge as I thought because they were really well motivated for the most part. And, uh, you know, really good people. I mean, you, you mentioned the uh, the bomb attack at Ramstein. Um, but in Italy, you've obviously got a, another terrorist issue with the Red Brigades. Did you have to take any extra precautions around yes, that? Yes, yes. Yes, we did. Um, for example, we when we first started, we had no facilities on base for our troops or very limited facilities. And so they lived in local hotels for the most part and traveled back and forth to the base each day by bus. So what we did was we arranged so that we could change the route and the time of the bus schedules every day to make sure no one could set up an IED or an ambush or whatever. Uh, so that was one of the measures we took. Um, uh, because they had already kidnapped a senior army officer, there was particular concern about our senior officers. So I had a bodyguard uh, that was with me all day and, and at night, we had two sentries 
we lived, it was kind of interesting. My wife and I lived in a little flimsy porta cabin on the side of a construction site. And so we had guards at night, and when they would talk to each other, we could hear them. So we had to sometimes call the command post and say, would you tell those guys to shut up? I would have imagined something a little bit more palatial for somebody of your rank, Richard. No, no, it was a flimsy little porta cabin because there had been no base housing built yet. So once the, the, the base is built and you've received the missiles, you know, what sort of exercises are you doing and how regular are they? The main exercises were deployment exercises. And as I said, we would use this Italian site at a place called Vizzini. And and a, a flight would be, you know, put on alert, then told to execute. And they would then deploy to the dispersal site, set up, you know, standby. And, uh, you know, we would look at how ready they were when they did that and, and how secure they kept things. That was the main form of training with these deployment exercises. Although sometimes you could also exercise launching from the base, which was possible because the launchers were stored in in very large bunkers and you could just pull them out and launch. You were saying there you could launch from the base or they could be deployed from the base. But I guess, you know, the the deployment would have to be sort of scheduled in one way, or could there just be, right, the alarm goes and you're out the gate within, I don't know, 10 minutes or something? Yeah, it was that sort of thing. When we received the orders, then we would deploy. And how friendly were the locals with... You know the the thought of having this um, you know nuclear missile base in their midst. We had some minor protest activity, but for the most part, they were friendly and receptive. Uh, the people of Comiso and and the surrounding towns like Caltagirone, and uh, and we did all we could to augment those relationships. Uh, I think of one instance in particular where. Comiso, outside of the city, had a, a garbage disposal site, and it caught fire, and it was a fire deep within the site, and they couldn't put it out. And uh, my fire chief on base came to me, and he said, sir, I think I can deal with that. He said, we have foam that we use for aircraft fires that I think will penetrate and do that job. So I said, let's talk to the locals, and they were happy to agree, and we put out the fire. We would, you know, take opportunities wherever we could to, to augment it, and um, they were generally frequently are receptive, and we would have uh, fairly frequent gatherings on base where we would invite the local citizenry. Fourth uh, of July was one play, time in particular where we would have a, some sort of activity on base and invite the locals. Uh, I, I remember the 4th of July, when I was there, there were a couple of incidents there that were kind of amusing. Uh, 
when the people were arriving, that was a New Year's event we staged and invited, you know, senior local citizens to. And as people arrived, I was telling them, which I thought meant Happy New Year. And the guy who was my translator called me aside and he said, you've been telling them nice ass. <laughs> I know his ass. Year is anno. You pronounce each letter in Italian. I said, whoops. But I, I finally, finally did some, I remedied that. I studied Italian because as I said, I, I commanded Italian troops and I thought I had an obligation to be able to speak to them when I went out at night, you know, went out at midnight to check guard posts in the storage area that I could communicate with the guys on duty. Mm. So I, I enjoyed, you know, I had a tutor. Uh, I sent myself to a total immersion school in Milan for a couple of weeks. That was kind of interesting. I was a little reluctant to do that. So I talked to the NATO commander up there in Venice. I said, you know, do you think it's okay if I take the funds to send myself to the school? And he looked at me and he said, what are they going to do, make you a colonel and send you to Sicily? <laughs> I said, okay, I got the idea. <laughs> so so I, I learned to speak passable Italian. Again, going back to the 4th of July celebration, uh, when everybody had assembled, much to nobody's expectation, I gave my speech in Italian. And my translator, who translated normally from Italian to English for me, translated from Italian to English for the Americans in the audience. <laughs> and the locals were quite pleased with all of that. And I, I, I enjoyed learning the local language. And I think it always goes a long way wherever you are. If you make an effort to speak in the language, they really appreciate that because it shows that you're interested and and you know care care about them yes i remember that fourth of july event as it was as people were leaving one of the attendees had been the bishop of the local diocese so i thought well i'll escort him to the gate and i did that and when we got there he said before i leave i want to thank you and i said oh you know having this party and sharing with you was just fun he said no that's not what i'm talking about and I said, oh, and he said, freedom and liberty. You all started that back there in 1776 and spread it around the world. And we're all grateful for that. I said, wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, powerful stuff. I'd argue that, you know, you started it in 1776. I think our parliament was probably around a bit before then, but I'm not going to uh, cross swords with you, Richard. <laughs> you don't want to cross swords with the bishop. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Or cross mitres for that. Yeah. Um, did you ever think that the Soviets would attack at some point? Or did you, you thought that deterrence was, was going to prevail? I think I thought it would, would prevail. And I thought that we were doing our part in and making sure that deterrence was effective. The cruise missile program didn't really last that long, did it? Because with the no. INF Treaty, they were then 
withdrawn. So it's a very expensive construction yes. program that yes. really didn't, you know, last for very long at all. Yeah, and the construction process could be really interesting some days. We were, as I said, we lived in this little porta cabin. And one day we were indoors and we, as I said, it was right next to where they were doing construction. And we were, I don't know what we were doing, but we heard this loud clanging noise. And so I didn't know what that was. So I got on my brick, which is what they called the little radio I carried. And I called the command post and I found out that a backhoe operator, as he was digging, had struck an unexploded bomb, a British 100 kilogram bomb. You guys made bombs that didn't work, apparently. And uh, so it was then kind of interesting to watch the Italian contractor. They had, they had a pretty primitive explosive ordnance disposal team they climbed down there with a hammer and chisel and broke the fuse off and, uh, and then hauled it away. And later that afternoon, we heard them detonated somewhere to the west of the base. Wow. Wow. I was going to say, to be fair, there's a lot of unexploded German ordnance still lying around in the UK. So uh, it, wasn't, it yes. wasn't just us. <laughs> no, it was everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, Richard, in, in all of this story, there's an unsung hero, your wife. Yes, yes, there is. Along the way, you know, I've tried to highlight those people who helped me and supported me, you know, during the course of my career. But there's one person in particular, as you just mentioned, my wife, Mary Lou, who's been my principal supporter through 26 years. She started out in a... Uh, <laughs> a dilapidated apartment in a little town in Indiana, and 26 years later ended up in a flimsy porta cabin on the edge of a bombed-out fighter base in Sicily. <laughs> Along the way, she was subject to constant movement and turmoil. During one nine-year period, we moved 11 times. And uh, every time, she would immediately take hold, establish a comfortable supportive uh, household, and then stand by to support me as I tried to learn the ins and outs of whatever new assignment that I was working on. She has really been my principal supporters in addition to the many others that I've had. Everywhere you moved to, she gave you a sort of solid operating base to work from. That's a good description, yes. And along the way, she raised two fine children. You know, when you think about it, you know, pick her up, plump her down in Germany or Italy or Texas, and she knows no one. She has no network. She's all alone with children to raise and a household to establish, and she does a great job every single time. Yeah, yeah. What you've you know describe to me over the last two hours or so is incredible it's an incredible career and an incredible story you know of you being supported almost every step of the way by you know various um officers and and people you meet but when you look back over that career what would you say is your proudest moment 
first of all, part of it is what you said. I'm grateful for all the people who helped me along the way. In terms of moments that I remember most or were most significant to me, one of them, of course, was, was Apollo 11. And uh, I guess the other that I remember well is receiving a group award of the Presidential Medal of Freedom for Apollo 13. So my tour at NASA was probably the highlight. Although all the rest of them were, you know, terribly interesting, adventurous. I can understand you picking that one because it, it was an incredible effort to carry off that mission from Kennedy saying we're going to go for the moon in the early 60s to delivering it before the end of that decade yes. and okay yes. you know you were part of that you know there was a whole other other teams of people there but it all had to come together more or less perfectly in order for it to work and to ensure the safety of those you know three astronauts yeah and along the way it sometimes took some improvisation to get it done don't miss the episode extras such as videos photos and other content just look for the link in the podcast information the podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and i'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road if you'd like to help the project just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate the cold war conversation continues in our facebook discussion group just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.